Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our series in Acts. Well, good morning. Brings me great joy to hear you guys talking. I know sometimes you think in church you're supposed to be very, very quiet. But uh, in most all church traditions, there's the giving of peace, there's the standing up and greeting one another. And I think it's such an important part where we let that be kind of an hors d'oeuvre of being the body of Christ and then look for other opportunities outside of this meeting to uh, get together. So if you, after the service, whoever you just greeted, uh, ask him to take you out for lunch. <laughs> I mean, you have not because you asked not. Right? Just, it's, what's the worst that can happen is no, right? <laughs> well, it's great to be with you. I do want to invite you to come out tomorrow night for newcomers. It's always an awesome night for me to rearticulate the vision uh, how we got here, you know, we were not always this church. I mean, DNA-wise we were, but uh, we were at one time without a facility. Uh, 600 people, uh, adults, and without a facility, and where do we go? And um, so this has been a fun journey to watch and see God's faithfulness, which is what I'm going to talk about tonight, or today rather. Uh, God's faithfulness in your life. So I want to share a scripture with you as we come to the last. Uh, can you bring me down just a tad? I'm a bit bright. Uh, last, uh, this is the last week we are in the book of Acts, and it's been a great journey. And that's exactly what we're going to study, a journey that the Apostle Paul is on uh, all the way to Rome. He's guaranteed that he's going to get to Rome but it seems like all hell is broken loose. All the things that are going to keep him from getting to Rome seem to be in the way. Uh, and the question comes up, is God faithful? Can God pull it off? And that's the question in your life as well. Can God pull it off? Uh, because we go through dark times, dark chapters. I know you're amazing, but uh, maybe the person next to you, not so much. And... Uh, I came upon a scripture early on in my Christian life, and it's found in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, which reads like this, faithful is he who called you who will also do it. And that's taken literally from the Greek. If you were to read it in the NIV, it reads like this, um, the one who has called you is faithful, and he will do it. Uh, or he will perform it. But I prefer the literal here, even though I like the NIV, and that that's how we speak in English. We we're make sure that it's the uh, subject, then the verb, and then the direct object, and that's what English teachers do when they get the translations from the translators. They say, wow, that's a great translation, but we don't speak that way in English. And so they have to rearrange the sentence. But sometimes when they rearrange the sentence to fit English, we lose uh, so, uh, in this case, it, Greek has the ability to show you what's being emphasized, whereas in English, we don't unless you put 
uh, it in italics or bold print or, you know, all this crazy stuff. There's, oh, that's an important word to the author. Well, in Greek, if you want to emphasize something, you just put it to the front of the sentence. So whatever starts out is emphatic. That's the big idea. And this is the way it reads in Greek. Faithful. Faithful. Faithful is he who called you. You didn't just come up with the idea. He actually called you. And guess what? Even though you're in your darkest hour, he's going to do it. Wow. And in the context of 1 Thessalonians, it's in the context not only of holiness, which is the immediate paragraph. Think of all the dark things inside you. Can he actually heal your temper? Can he actually heal your impatience? Can he actually heal your greed? Can he actually heal your lust so that you don't drag this into heaven? I mean, that's a tall order. But then if you go back and read the rest of Thessalonians, you find out that other people have made some decisions for the Thessalonians that they suffer from, that they've made some poor decisions that they suffer from, and that circumstances have happened and persecution that they suffer from. And can God pull them through all of that so that whatever God promised and called them to, he actually pulls it off? Because he's writing a story in your life. He's writing a story. And you're, you're desperate because you think the story's about to end and it still hasn't happened. But I want to encourage you, you're only in chapter 5 and that may not encourage you. <laughs> but we go through dark chapters, difficult chapters. Sometimes we wake up and we feel like, wow, what happened? And we want to go back to bed and get out the other side of the bed, right? See if we can start this day again. But sometimes it's, can we start this life again? Because this is a dark chapter. And my word to you today is faithful is he who called you. And baby, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. So let's pray and dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the promiser that we can trust. And now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take this word and drop it down 12 inches from our head to our hearts and let this truth explode inside of us that it might change everything about us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul has a promise, and the promise is you're going to Rome. And so let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, that's not a big deal for you. Some of you have been to Italy. But for Paul, to go to Rome is the biggest and most important thing in his life. It is... It is the big apple of the ancient world. The second was Alexandria, but this is the capital of the known Western world, and he gets to go preach the gospel there. He's done it in Jerusalem, and now he's boarding a ship for Italy. Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius. This guy's going to turn out to be a nice guy. He's going to discover who Paul is, and he, he's going to show up all throughout this story. And he belongs to the imperial regiment. So he's actually someone who is from Rome, who represents the emperor, 
And he's now escorting Paul and a few other prisoners that are supposed to have their court in Rome, and he's in charge of taking care of them. And they board this ship, Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia Minor. And we put out to sea, Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The us, us is Paul, Luke, who's writing this, so we get a firsthand account of the journey, and Aristarchus. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness, that's the centurion, allowed Paul uh, to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. Now, he doesn't know Paul well enough yet, so Paul is not just walking the streets of Sidon. He's got a guard with him. But they meet with their Christian friends there, And they provide for Paul's needs and probably give him some food for the journey. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. Now, let's look at the map here and see what is happening here. I put some orange dots and some yellow dots. And the orange dots are where you're following God and everything's going hunky-dory and it's just like you planned. The yellow dots are yowzers. What are we doing? Where is God? We've lost our way and is God faithful? And then we end up with orange dots again. So they start at Caesarea, sail up to Lebanon in Sidon, and then they, they sail to the Lee of Cyprus, the reason it's the lee is because the wind is blowing from the southwest. I feel like a weatherman right here. (laughs) So oftentimes in the summertime in the uh, Mediterranean, there's these gentle southwest winds that are blowing off of uh, the, the north of Africa, just blowing across. Great time to go sailing. So they sail along Asia Minor here, modern day Turkey, come to Myra, And that's all good. It's just the way it's supposed to be. And so when they get to Myra, they actually switch ships. And it says, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship. Go back to the map. Let me show you where Alexandria is. It's uh, it's right about here. It's, It's on the west part of Egypt and it's the second biggest city in the Roman Empire at the time. So they get on an Alexandria ship sailing for Italy. So it's a switch buses, in other words, different Greyhound bus. And we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving at Snedus. Just think of sneeze, just a crazy word, Snedus. Uh, when, they, when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fairhaven near Lassia, the town of Lassia. Again, the map, they, they wanted to just keep going from Snedus right across the Aegean Sea, uh, into the Adriatic Sea. This is the Aegean Sea, this is the Adriatic Sea, all Mediterranean. They wanted to just keep sailing across and uh, get over safely to Rome, but now the winds won't let them. There's a headwind that's keeping them. It's starting to blow from the west 
So they sail to the lee uh, of, of Crete, uh, and I should say northwest, and they get as far as Fairhaven. And this is the crossroads of the story. Paul believed it's God's will that he go to Rome. Is it going to happen? Well, it says in Acts 19.21, after I had been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. In Romans, he wrote the book of Romans before this journey. In the book of Romans, it says, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And as you know, later on in the book of Acts, Jesus stood near Paul in the night and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And Paul believed. You and I might ask the question, when God makes a promise to you, what's our role? He makes promises to us from primarily the word of God. What I'm telling you today is a promise. The promise is God is faithful in your life. That is the promise. If you said, well, what's my role? Your role is believe. When you believe, it is like the spark in your engine. It's the spark that ignites the the gas fumes in the cylinder, pushes the piston, turns over the engine so that things begin. And that's all you do. You're not the engine. You're not the gasoline and power. Just believe. So if this was a play up here, and you're in the play, in the drama, and you say to me, and I'm the playwright, so, so what's my role, coach? What do I say? What do I say? Okay, this is your line. I believe. And get off the stage. That's all your, that's, that's your part. That's it? But I want to do this, and I want to do, no, 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 no. That's your line. I believe. Can you say that? I believe. So what promises has he made to you? Thousands of promises in the word of God. The biggest is that one day you get to see the face of God. One day you get to walk the streets of gold. One day you get to be with your brothers and sisters in paradise, heaven. And that's, that's an amazing thing. And live forever. One day the, the, the shadow lands that we live into turn into wonderland where we live a life of full-on wonder, uh, discovering God's glory in so many, many different ways. But the question is, do you believe? And do you believe in the tough times? Everybody believes in the good times. Many times we'll say in church, uh, God is faithful, and the congregation responds all the time. And we do it again. God is faithful all the time. That's easy in church. It's the right answer. But I dare say I, that some of you, when circumstances get bad, you believe, you, not in church, but in your own life, in, in front of your own therapist, you believe circumstances are bigger than God. Or some of you believe that other people's decisions are bigger than God, and they've ruined your life with the decisions they made for you. Or you believe that your own poor or even sinful decisions are so big 
that God cannot rescue your life and get you to Rome. And I'm here to tell you, you're wrong. That God is faithful and he's bigger. So in this story, Paul believes. And what he believes in is not just the promise, but bigger, he believes in the promiser. Because sometimes the story changes than how you imagined it. I didn't think I was going to be single. I didn't think I was going to have this many children or not have any children. I didn't think that I was going to see. See, I'm meddling now. And, and with that, we just kind of, we've, we know God's faithful, but this isn't how I thought it was going to go. And I would encourage you to not just focus on the promise, but the promisor. Because he will never leave you or forsake you. He was faithful even to the end of the age. There's a great story in the New Testament in the eighth chapter of Matthew, which incidentally is all about healing, if you want to study healing. But one of the healing paragraphs is a centurion. And the centurion lives in the same town that Jesus lives in, Capernaum. So they may have known each other, at least seen each other, because Capernaum was a village. So how do you not notice each other? But he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, my servant is sick. And Jesus says, oh, where is he? I'll come. But he knows the gap between the Gentile world and the Jewish world, and it's not proper for an Orthodox Jew to come into a Gentile home and become unclean. He knows all that. And so he just says, no, 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 no. Just say the word, and it'll happen. I love that, because his trust is in the fact that Jesus is going to come. He's going to do this rigmarole and razzmatazz and put his hands on it, and they're just going to do all the right things. His trust is in Jesus. And he just says, Jesus, you just say the word. And it happens. And time and time again, I'm being brought back even beyond the promise to the promiser. Well, now the story continues. And someone makes a bad decision that affects Paul's life significantly. Chapter 27, verse 9. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur uh, in Jewish calendar, is on a lunar calendar. So uh, it, it comes at the end of September, early October. And the winds begin to shift, and in the ancient world, it was time to start shutting down sailing for the winter because it was too dangerous of what might come up through the wintertime. So they're sailing late in the season. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be d disastrous and bring great loss to the ship, cargo, and to our own lives also. So we know Paul well enough that even though Paul has a, a, a huge amount of sailing experience, logged in thousands and thousands of miles, so he's no neophyte, even though he's not a captain. Uh, when you sailed on an ancient ship, 
it wasn't a cruise ship, my friends, <laughs> where you just go up to the dining room for your 18th time today. Uh, it was participation. Everyone was on the deck. There was only one deck, and you saw the way the sailors handled the sails, the ropes, the anchors. You saw how they moored into the harbor. You saw everything that went on. So if you've been on ships for thousands and thousands of miles, you're experienced. So Paul is already an experienced man who knows we're late in the year. But it seems like it's more than that here, that he's actually got some impression from God that it doesn't look good if we keep going. And so he warns them about going any further. We need to stay in Fairhaven. But the centurion instead listened to what Paul, uh, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot. The pilot is the captain and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority of the, sh the ship, people on the ship, and we'll find out there's 276 people on the ship, decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So it has a, a harbor that allows them two exits and probably can moor the ship at different parts of the harbor depending on what storms are coming in to protect the ships. And so they want to get to Phoenix. Now look at the map again and see Phoenix is not that far away. Phoenix is this yellow dot right here. So they just have to sail along the lee of Crete and get to Phoenix. This is another island right out here, Clauda, and it doesn't go well for them because they just are sailing, probably just creeping along, um, and it says to the lee of Crete. So what that means is it's, it's on the, the windless side, so the wind is already coming down like this, but they're just creeping along, and then all hell breaks loose because one person made a decision. Human error. And they don't make it to Phoenix. So as we read on, let me find my place here. Um, verse 13. Then a gentle south wind began to blow so now it shifts. So now it's blowing from the south, and they saw the opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed to the north uh, to, along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. So now it's coming out of the northeast. It starts out coming from the south, but now it switches and is coming out of the northeast, and it's out of control. So the word here uh, for hurricane force, you know, whenever I see something like that in Scripture, I think, really? Is that a good translation, hurricane force? You know, I, I mean, hurricanes have to be 70 miles an hour. That's category one. And then they go up, right? We're all familiar. We just watched one come through South Carolina and North Carolina. So uh, what is this? Well, the word 
is typhoonikos, from which we get our word typhoon. So the translator is just trying to let you know whatever the mile an hour was, it, it was no small storm. And it actually gives us the word. The word in the Greek is eurokilo. And, and eura is, is, comes from euro, European. Akilo is a, comes from the Latin to the north. So this is a northeaster coming down of Eastern Europe hitting the ship. When I lived growing up in Santa Ana, we had winds that were named after our town, Santa Ana winds. We in Santa Ana didn't call them Santa Ana winds. We called them Santanas. We didn't like it being named after us. Uh, but if you know, Santana was a general, Mexican general, not a wind. And so I think all of us have learned to speak about it correctly because it comes through the Santa Ana Canyon and the wind compresses as it comes through the canyon between San Gorgonio Mountain and uh, whatever that other mountain is. And, and, and it compresses and it comes right through the canyon. Uh, but that's our northeaster. It comes down from the northeast of the desert. When it hits uh, Orange County, oftentimes it wraps around at first and begins to hit us as a north wind, but as the high pressure moves south, it begins to hit us as an east wind as well. So we experienced, when we lived in New England, short time, six years, everybody in New England feared. We, we did get a couple of hurricanes that made it all the way up there, but everyone feared the nor'easter. The nor'easter, people in Maine, talk about these nor'easters like nobody's business because they come out of the northern Atlantic and they come down and, and, and it's freezing cold, wind 40 miles an hour, gusts beyond that. And it, it's just something you don't want to be in. Well, they get them here in the Mediterranean as well. And now what do they do? So it says the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. This is one of the most helpless feelings of a, a sea captain. You're driving a vehicle that the steering wheel doesn't work. You follow me? You are being driven along. You do your best to pull down the sails, but the boat is a sail. My dad and I might remember the time that, he, Dad, you took us to uh, Lake Powell to, uh, to have a nice little vacation and brought my dad's ski boat. Now, I was 18, 17, something like that, or I guess 18, because I was now a Christian. And um, so uh, my sister and I were going to go water skiing there in Lake Powell, and my dad would drive the boat. So we were trailing the ski boat behind the houseboat, and a huge wind came up. And do you know what a houseboat is in a wind? A sailboat. A sailboat without a keel and without a rudder. So my dad is fighting, trying to keep the houseboat from blowing up against the rocks to find some place to moor for the night. And he asked me to get in the ski boat, tie the ski boat to the front of the houseboat so that we, I'm pulling him and we can get, and both of us together, full bore, could not fight the wind. Yeah. So we finally went into the rocks and we moored there for the night. <laughs> 
Now, what happens when that happens to you? Your life just happened. It went from bad to worse. Someone made a bad decision. Maybe we should have just stayed in the harbor for the night and not gone out. We made the decision, and then now circumstances come along. What happens? Everyone has an opinion. One, God is against us. There's always that person. God said we, we should repent. God said, and it's just like, we're going to throw you overboard if you say that one more time. Uh, there, there's someone saying, I told you so. You should have listened. And there's someone, and then finally you decide, now what do we do? And in your life, the question is, is God still God in this moment? So they passed by the island of Cauda uh, and were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So they have this large lifeboat that they're trailing, like you've seen many yachts trailing a little dinghy, only this is a larger lifeboat, and the vibration and the tug between the two boats in the storm is just unbearable. So they finally were able to pull the lifeboat and hoist it up onto the main boat. And then they frap the boat, wrapping ropes around the hull of the boats because it's gonna, it could start breaking up under the powerful waves that are hitting the boat. So because of that, they were afraid, it says in verse 17, that um, they would run aground on the sandbars of Sardis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So they're dragging a sea anchor to slow things down. Look back at the map again, and we'll see where the, the Sardis sands are. So the, the sand dunes that are down here in Libya, northern Africa, uh, Tunisia, Algeria, so forth, the sand dunes blow into the ocean and create sandbars. And so this area is known for its sandbars, and so you do not want to sail uh, willy-nilly down into this area. You want to keep it. And plus, if you're actually sailing in the Mediterranean, here's a brick wall you're going to run into way over here at... at uh, um, Morocco, so you're going to have to make this huge right turn to get around and sail up into Rome or go through Regium and get up to Rome, but they don't have a clue as to where they are. There's no navigation if you have no stars. There's no navigation if you have no sun. So if it's rainy, cloudy, and it's night, you're just adrift. And how long are they going to be adrift? And how seasick were they? Oh, my gosh. Well, let's look on. It says, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw all the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And, and when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. You gave up all hope. God said you're going to Rome, but it sure doesn't look <laughs> like any of us are going to Rome. So where is God when circumstances go crazy? You have people's decisions, you have circumstances, and it's out of control. Well, guess what? God shows up. In verse 21, he's in the middle of the storm. It says, 
After a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice. Now, I don't like this. (laughs) How many of you like people to give you advice when you don't solicit it? I don't like that, and I particularly don't like people that say, I told you so, because I already know. Please don't waste your bullets and say that. Uh, But I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. I think what Paul is doing is laying the groundwork for what he's about to say. I said something once. You didn't know me. You didn't listen to me. But it turned out to be true. So now I'm going to tell you the second thing. And the second thing is take courage. He says, now I urge you, keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. I love how Paul is able to speak secular language. He doesn't get God language on the people. Come on, you need to love God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. And these are all secular sailors. I don't know what that language is. He says, be courageous. He says, last night, he says, not one will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel. Now he does witness, and it's beautiful, but it's very accessible. An angel of God stood near me, and he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. You are going to Rome. Deal with it. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So Paul was interceding for the lives of everybody on ship. So keep up your courage, he says, says, men, for I have faith in God, and it will happen just as he told me. It will happen just like he told me. God has made a promise to you, it will happen just like he told you. Now, if he's made like a private promise that you're going to be six foot five and handsome and you're believing it, you know, or you're 60 years old and God's promised you you're going to get pregnant. Some, I've, I've experienced these crazy promises that people say God said. Um, my advice to you with any private promise is to check it out with friends, friends that'll speak truth to you, And check it out with Scripture. Because this is the primary promise book. And the private promises sometimes can get a little bit skewed. Uh, And we wonder where things, where the promiser is in those private promises. But let me give you an example. So God said to Joseph in the Old Testament, near the end of Genesis, um, all your brothers, this is in a vision, all your brothers are going to bow down before you. And he made a mistake of telling his brothers that. (laughs) No bueno. (laughs) Not a good idea. But nevertheless, he did it. So uh, the next time they see him, they said, oh, here comes that brat. Uh, let's, Let's kill him. And Reuben, the older brother, says, no, 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 no. Let's not kill him, but let's, let's trade him. So they trade him to Midianite traders, and now he's on a caravan down to Egypt as a prisoner. How is the promise of God going to be fulfilled? Someone made a bad decision that affects your life. Hasn't it happened to you? 
usually you have to work through forgiveness. Every morning you wake up, their face is right in front of your face. You see them. It's just like, oh, God, curse them. I mean, I mean, bless them. What do you do? And then they're there tomorrow morning. They're there the next morning. And so Joseph is on his way. He's betrayed by his own flesh and blood. He gets down there, and pretty soon, someone takes a liking to him, named Potiphar. He goes to Potiphar's house. Someone else makes a bad decision that affects his life. She tries to seduce him. Then she accuses him, and he ends up in prison. What do you think Joseph is doing? Romans 8.28 wasn't written yet, but I'm sure he's saying, all things work together for good for those that love. Somewhere, God made a promise to me. And then two men show up in prison, and he interprets their dreams. The butler and the cupbearer, and uh, the baker and the cupbearer, and uh, he says to one of them, remember me when you get back into the palace. The other one didn't need to remember him because the promise was he's going to die, which he did. But guess who forgets about him? The cupbearer. And he's in prison again. Folks, we go through these times, and these are the times we got to dig deep and grab on to the promiser that he is faithful. So when circumstances go wrong, God is still in charge. So watch what happens in verse 27. On the 14th night, hello, <laughs> the 14th night? Some of you have never been on a cruise for 14 days. I haven't, nor would I. But 14 nights at sea, seasick, can't see the stars, in suspense. Are we, are we drowning today? Are we going ashore today, hitting some reef or something? And so it says, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land, and they took a sounding, and it was 120 feet, which is not the deepest part of the Mediterranean. So they thought, wow, maybe and a short time later, they take another sounding, and they're at 90 feet. And fearing that they'll be dashed on the rocks, they drop four anchors off the stern of the boat, and they pray for daylight. Oh, God, if you're ever God, this is a time to be God. In an attempt to escape the ship, the sailors let down a lifeboat into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower anchors off the bow. And Paul caught them and said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. That's an incentive. <laughs> if these men don't stay here, you die. I think Paul knew, I'm going to Rome regardless. But God made a promise that everyone would be saved on the ship. These men need to stay on the ship. So the soldiers intervene and they cut the ropes to the lifeboat and now the lifeboat is drifting away. That doesn't sound good. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. This is the third, this is the fourth intervention. The third is the lifeboat. The fourth intervention is Paul urging them to eat. For the last 14 days, you have been constant suspense without food. You need it to survive. Now, one of you will lose a single hair from your head. Wow. Then he broke it, which means in front of them, he gave thanks. Wow. He's become the captain and the chaplain 
uh, of the ship, the leader. And they began to eat, and they were all encouraged and ate food. And all together, there were 276 on board. And then they lightened the ship, throwing the rest of the grain into the sea. And when daylight came, they, recognized, they did not recognize the land, but they saw the bay. There, on the island of Malta, there is a bay there that's called Paul's Bay, named after the Apostle Paul. That's all he got out of this, was a, 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 a bay named after him. And a sandy beach, and they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So they're now cut, cutting the anchors, leaving them in the ocean, uh, untying the rudders. The rudders would, just like if you were going to try to go straight in a car, and you, but not with any hands, you could tie the steering wheel so it would go straight. Well, they tied the rudders so that the rudders wouldn't be going all over the place during the last 14 days. So they cut those ropes. So now they have control of the rudders, and they put up the front sail, the foresail, and they make for the beach. But the ship, it uh, but the ship stuck, struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces. So now they're far, farther from shore than they wanted to be, and now the boat that they're in is being broken up by the powerful waves. So the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners. Uh, we can't save them, so kill them. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first, and the rest wait and grab a plank or pieces of the ship that were now drifting away, and in this way, everyone reached land safely. Now, wouldn't you think that that was already a bad day? <laughs> like 14 bad days? And now you're on land, terra firma, finally, finally, kissing the dirt. Well, guess real quickly what happens. Is the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire, welcomed us because it was still raining and cold. Paul gathers a pile of brushwood as he put it on the fire. A viper driven out by the heat fastened itself onto Paul's hand. And the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand. And they say, that guy must be a murderer. He thought he was going to escape the goddess of justice of the sea, but the goddess of justice is, is found him out. And Paul shakes off the snake into the fire and suffered no ills. He didn't swell up, suddenly fall dead, seeing nothing. The islanders switched and changed their minds and said he was a god. <laughs> kind of like your fair weather friends do. Like... They, they gossip about you when you're doing bad, and then when you start doing good, they say, hey, great to see you. You're amazing. Can I borrow some more money? Um, what a bad day. You finally get on terra firma, and a snake bites you. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way? Like God is just gone. He just disappeared, and now I'm just at the mercy of circumstances and maybe the devil himself. I would have thought that when the snake is just like, wow, this is the devil himself. But the story turns when the apostle Paul shakes off the snake. There was a promise made 
by Jesus, Mark chapter 16, snakes will bite you and, and you will not die. There is a promise that was made. Now, some people have tested that promise in the Appalachian Mountains, and there's a whole story behind that. But, but Jesus is with you. He's promised to take care of you. So what happens when not only bad decisions other people make affect you, but circumstances are so big, it feels like you're helpless. Where is God? And I'm here to tell you, God is in the storm. And he is faithful. There's a person in the Old Testament, a, a shining star, both Naomi and Ruth, that have this kind of experience. Naomi's husband, she's got two strapping, good-looking sons. They decide they're not making it in the famine land of, of Israel, so let's go over the border into Jordan. It was called Moab at the time, and let's... Uh, take care of our family. So they do that. The first thing that happens that feels like a bad decision is her two sons don't marry people who share their same faith. They marry Moabite women, and now, so they're married to pagan women, and, and they themselves have taught their sons to worship just one God. Uh, and so that doesn't feel right. And then Naomi's husband dies, and then her sons die, and now she's left with two pagan women, and she says, you know, just go back. And one of the daughter-in-law says, I will, goodbye. And the other one says, no, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay, and your God will be my God. And she pronounces this conversion and she goes back to the land. But think of all the things that went wrong for Ruth and Naomi. And the question always, is God faithful? And is God bigger than circumstances? So the promise finally gets fulfilled. After three months, verse 11 of chapter 28, the final chapter of, of the book of Acts, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island another Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Now, why Luke tells us this, I think is just is not that he's a pagan. He's just saying this is, this is a bit of irony because Castor and Pollux are the sons of Zeus. One is the god of navigation and the other is the god of good sailing. And it's kind of an irony, like, like, where were they the whole time we needed them? But now, here we are uh, on our way to Rome, and I guess they'll be with us. So the next day, the south wind came up, and the following day, they reached Petioli, that sounds uh, Italian, uh, which incidentally, if, if you've been to Italy, this is on the northern part of the big bay of Naples. So you have Petioli and then uh, Pompeii, and then around to the south side, you have Naples. Got to be careful because there's Italians in the room and they, they might be able to correct me. Um, they, there we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. And so we came to Rome. We came to Rome. Listen, if God promised it, it's going to happen. It just may not be the way you thought. Many, many times I have written the, the script 
how the promise is going to be fulfilled. And that's the rub. I said, God never follows my script, but he does fulfill his promise. Now watch what happens. Some wonderful things begin to happen. One is they meet some brothers and sisters right there in Peteoli. Uh, and, and so we came to Rome. And then brothers and sisters heard that we were coming and traveled as far as Forum Appius and the three taverns, which is uh, about 30 miles south of Rome. Do you have any friends that would walk 30 miles because they heard you were coming and they wanted to meet you? This is amazing. Paul is this famous guy that his renown has gone all the way to Rome already. And they, of course, have read his letter to the Romans. And so they come and meet him. And now Paul fulfills his dream. It says in verse 17 of chapter 24, local Jewish leaders uh, came and said to Paul, and Paul says to them, my brothers and sisters, and Paul begins to explain to him. He says, you may have heard some bad things about me from the Sanhedrin, but all I'm guilty of is believing the hope of Israel, which is the Messiah. And then they say to him, oh, we didn't know of any problem about you. Nothing came to me. And Paul says, rats, I shouldn't have said anything. Uh, but he, he's, he says, well, come tomorrow, and I'll tell you. And so they go and get a large number of Jewish people to all come and hear what Paul has to say. And, and he preaches the gospel. It says in verse 23, from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. You think my sermons are long. <laughs> from morning to evening, preaching the kingdom of God. And some were convinced. And then other people disagreed and uh, went their way. And then verse 30, it says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And the book of Acts ends. Luke ends the book of Acts right where they were. This is as far as they got. And... We, we don't know. There's two different stories in church history. One is that Paul, right after this, after the two years, finally got his audience with Caesar Nero, and Caesar Nero had him killed. Uh, another story is that Paul was actually released, and he actually got to Spain and preached the gospel in Spain, which is a part of his other dream, and then arrested again and brought back for Rome. And there he stood trial, proclaimed the gospel to Caesar Nero, and he died for his faith. But the point of this story is God is faithful. Faithful is he who called you who will also do it. He's going to do it, folks. He's just that guy. Uh, and that's the guy that you have plugged into. And you have plugged into him by believing. That's your line. That's your role. Believing him. But believing him in the hard moments. And there's so many painful moments. This is not heaven, folks. Hello? <laughs> some, of, some people are surprised. They think when they come to Christ, they say, wow, heaven just happened. 
This is not heaven. We are behind enemy lines. There's evil, there's circumstances, and there's people making wrong decisions, and where is God? God is bigger than all of this. And what he said to you is what he is going to do because he is faithful and he will also do it. One final thing. There's circumstances, there's people who make bad decisions that affect you, but the final thing is to say there's decisions you've made that were poor and or sinful decisions. And the question is, is God bigger than that? Is God bigger than hell and the devil? And the answer is yes. It's called forgiveness. It's called the cross. It's called the resurrection, where he says, today, grace starts today in your life. I forgive you. And it doesn't mean that there aren't some consequences to clean up. It doesn't mean that you're suddenly Superman flying around the sky, but it means that account is settled with God and you are forgiven and grace starts today. You can spend your time weeping over spilt milk or you can get up and clean it and thank God for forgiving you. And now live a new day. There's a third character in the Old Testament. His name is David. And he made a bad decision. He made a sinful decision. And we all know the story. I won't belabor the point. But the point is, can God forgive him? And God forgives him. This is a big, 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 big God. <laughs> Do you see it? It's not, I am looking at what you're looking at. Uh, notice, when evil looks so big and others' decisions look so big and circumstances look so big, where's God's will? Will God's will ever happen? And since they're showing you that slide, show you the next slide uh, where the arrows, uh, no, not that one, uh, that one. God's will is bigger than all of it. He said it, and I believe it. Jan and I were reading a psalm. We read a psalm every morning together. And Psalm 74, uh, you should read it. At, in the middle of it, it says, you were there. And it's got this rhythmic chant, just like a, a good preacher would do it, where he says, when we came to the Red Sea and we didn't know what we were going to do, you were there. And then when the chariots were coming after us and we didn't know it, you were there. And then we got into the Sinai Desert and we didn't know how we were going to, you were there. You were there. And it's such a great chant to realize in, it's not that God was with you in your best moments and then God took a vacation and then he rejoined up with you later on. He was there all along. Psalm 77 says, we, didn't, we couldn't see your footprints but you were there. Folks, God is with you. He is faithful, and he will also do it. Shall we pray? Father, thank you that you are faithful, that you have never left us or forsaken us, nor will you. And lo, you are with us even to the end of the age. 
God, we, we come to terms with the decisions other people have made that affected our lives. God, we release them, we forgive them, but we also believe you're bigger. We come to terms with circumstances that have happened, and we believe, God, you're bigger. And God, we even come to terms with our own sin and our own folly, and we believe you're bigger. Thank you, God, that faithful are you. You are faithful, and you'll also do it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.